morning, I'm asking that you open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. Our focus this morning actually comes from the book of James, but we are still very much in our study of the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And I hope as we go through this sermon, and certainly by the end, you'll understand why we are looking at this passage together this morning. James has a lot to say about prayer in his brief letter. We'll note those as we study this passage. But we are beginning a new study uh, of John 17, commonly called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, our Savior. And our catechism reminds us that Jesus executes or fulfills the office of priest, remember, prophet, priest, and king. But specifically with regard to fulfilling the office of a priest, he does it in two ways. The first is the most familiar to us, and that is he offers up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. That is what theologians call the passive obedience of Christ, often referred to as his suffering and death, his giving of himself in our place that he might satisfy the wrath of God against us. But his priestly intercession is a second aspect of his fulfilling the office of a priest, and that is he makes continual intercession for us. Even now, before the Father's right hand, he is interceding for us. He ever lives, Hebrews tells us. He ever lives now to make intercession for them, that is, his people. As we saw last week, our Savior is a praying Savior, that sets him apart from every other world religion. He was such here on earth as demonstrated last week and at other times, the instances, some 38 at least, recorded prayers of Jesus, references like the one we read from Luke this morning that tells us it was his common practice to draw away and to enter into a time and season of prayer before his father. This morning, I want us to look at what is the overall pattern of prayer, and specifically with respect to the effectiveness of prayer. It's one of the things we struggle with always. We ask ourselves, am I praying correctly? I don't seem to be getting the answers that I want. What we're doing is continuing to set down a good foundation so that when we begin in a couple of weeks to look at the text itself in John 17, will have a much better understanding. The main point I want us to see this morning is that when Jesus prays, when he prayed as he does and did in John 17 and all of the other recorded places, that he himself followed that ordinary pattern of prayer that he set forth in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., that Jesus was following that general overall pattern himself because there is a pattern to prayer. There is a pattern to prayer that, if I might put it this way, makes it effective, effectual. What is prayer? Our catechism, again, is helpful. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Of course, that definition of prayer as applied to Jesus would 
not have him confessing any sin, since he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But he does follow that first part of the offering up of his desires unto God for all things agreeable to his will. And that pattern that Jesus followed is the pattern that we're called to follow as well. John Calvin, the great reformer, defines prayer this way, the communion of men with God, by which having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience that which they believed was not in vain. They come believing God's promises and they bring those promises before God through Christ into the heavenly sanctuary and they lay out their desires before him, casting all of our desires, our sighs, our anxieties, our fears, our hopes and joys, Calvin said, into the lap of God. It is like a child who climbs up into the lap of his father. Such is the picture of the communion that we have with God through prayer and through the person and merit of Jesus Christ, that we are permitted to pour into God's very bosom, if you will, the difficulties which torment us in order that he may loosen the knots which we cannot untie. Now we see much of this, this casting our desires upon the Lord and before him, according to his will. We see much of that in John 17, as we'll see in our study. And such prayer, James will tell us, is powerful and effective. It is powerful and effective. As we come to the Father in and through Jesus in faith believing, the Father hears us because he hears the Son and he delights to answer and to grant to him all that he desires for us. So that is my goal this morning, that you may see as we prepare to study John 17, that as the King James often has it, the effectual and fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Please stand as we read James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. James 5, just verse 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bless your word now to our hearing as it has been read in our presence. 
and by your spirit to the growth of grace in our lives, that we might, understanding what James is teaching and the ministry of Jesus, that we might be those who pray in power and the effectiveness of your spirit. As we do this, we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> I do believe in miracles, but a second glass of water, that was very good, whoever did that, because I think I'll be using it. Thank you. Um, the statistics, we're told, uh, say that it is one in 50,000 chances that this could happen. That's the likelihood of conceiving conjoined twins, one in 50,000 births. But for Dwight and Stephanie Castle, recorded in their story in the recent World Magazine article, who are originally from Birmingham, Alabama, but who lived in Pennsylvania for a brief time while their twin girls, conjoined at the chest, were delivered and cared for at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. For them, the statistical uh, chances were 100% because their girls were joined again, conjoined at the chest and delivered safely. Here's what they note, that when they found out visiting their doctor in Alabama, where they lived at the time, we didn't say anything, Dwight says, for the longest time when we first heard the news from the doctors. We simply just wept. Discontinuing the pregnancy was never an option for the castles, not even a thought in their head. But Dwight admits feeling hopeless. I was trying to believe the goodness of God in this. I believe in his power, his ability to save, his sovereignty over everything. But how was this good? How was this good? Those questions may sound very familiar to you, though the situation you face this morning may be very different. You've prayed fervently for that child who has wandered away from the faith and you feel hopeless or for that marriage that the Lord would renew and strengthen it, but you live in disappointment, believing God cannot change things. Or maybe you've prayed for a loved one who just received a diagnosis that is very threatening to their lives. You want them healed, but thus far God has not healed them. Or maybe it's your own life, the illness that you're facing and the struggles that you feel inside. What will this mean for my life? And yet you see no answer with regard to the pattern that your life is now taking and the future that you now fear. Those questions about where is God? Why doesn't he hear us? Why doesn't he listen? Why does it seem as if my prayers are ineffective, that they do not accomplish what it is that I ask for? As much as I can judge my own heart as I ask in faith believing, well, these are questions that the castles certainly faced as a family that the Lord in his providence added to their number. These two beautiful girls conjoined at the chest to join their other children already born. They face these questions. Many of us face the same questions in our own lives. The subject that we're talking about in John 17 is the subject of prayer. Uh, prayer is a broad, wide subject in the Bible. We actually did a series not so long ago in the beginning of one of the years. I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, 
four-part series, I believe, on the subject of prayer. It may have been last year or the year before. But in that series, we tried to look at some of these patterns that we see in the Bible for prayer and some of the teachings regarding prayer that our catechisms and confession put before us. But what I want to do this morning as we prepare to look eventually in the text of John 17 is I want to understand what James here has to say in this particular chapter in his teaching about persevering in prayer and pressing on in prayer. And then after that, I want to see what this means as we consider Jesus, who, who I believe, I'll state it up front, who I believe is the ultimate fulfillment of what James says here, that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's powerful that there is no one more powerful, more righteous, if you will, than the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, his prayer for us in John 17 is itself powerful and effective to accomplish all that God intends. That's my real desire this morning, is to see this particular statement of James as reflected in the person and the praying of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we need to understand what it is that James is, in fact, teaching in these verses. So again, having your Bibles open to James chapter 5, it is worth noting, you don't need to turn to it, but James actually has a lot to say about prayer in his brief letter. In chapter 1, you may remember, he talks about the encouragement that believers ought to have in going to God for wisdom. He says, let him ask of God for wisdom. God delights to give wisdom to all who ask, but he says, let him ask, not double-minded, not doubting. And so faith becomes central to James as he calls people to ask God, believing that God will actually grant wisdom to those who ask without doubting. And then in chapter 4, he speaks about prayer again as he says, you have not because you ask not, he says. And when you do ask, he says, you ask amiss because you ask for selfish reasons, essentially, for your own pleasures. And therefore, in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, he's talking about the importance of faith, believing God, that God knows what is best, that God is faithful to what he has promised. And so when we get to chapter 5, and he says what he does here, we have those passages in our minds as understanding the importance of faith as it relates to prayer, that we must believe God, that God indeed will do what he has promised. And so if you look at this passage, it's a part of the end of James, which contains several and various instructions regarding many different things patience and trial and suffering, and towards the end here, this main focus upon prayer and believing prayer. Now, what is interesting is it is, it seems, most commentators agree, that it seems to be a passage that speaks particularly to the times in which James is writing. There are indications here that this may very well be limited to a time in which the elders, as they uh, lived out their ministry in the early church, in the presence of the, the gifts that were given to the church in those years where the 
word of God was being put together, if you will, and before the canon was itself closed, that there were miracles and workers of miracles, those who healed. Many commentators believe that's what happens here and the, the very use of oil, which most believe today is not prescriptive. We're not required to do that. The healing is not related, if you will, to the oil as much as it is to the faith and the prayer offered in faith that you see there in verse 15. So there's lots of debate as to what is going on here with regard to the sick and the calling of the elders of the church. We, we do and have taught many times in the past that when you are sick, the initiation is on the part of the one who is sick to call the elders, to invite them to come and to pray for you. And we've done that in the past in our church as people have called us, we've gone. Uh, at some points we've used oil and anointed and most of the times we simply just come and we pray believing that God, if he is pleased, would grant true healing. And so you have this, this broader picture here of a particular event perhaps in the life of the church to whom James is writing. And the real key here I think is verse 15. And the prayer of faith, he writes, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, James writes in a context that it's very important for us to understand. You saw earlier, or we saw earlier at different points in John chapter 9, for instance, it was common to believe that on the part of the one who is sick, that there may be some particular sins. Jesus corrects that view of his disciples who sinned, this man or his parents, and Jesus says neither had sinned. So there are times where sickness is very much related to sin. Think of Psalm 32, when I withheld from confessing and repenting of my sins, my, my bones ached, right? The physical realities of uh, keeping ourselves in a place of sin before the God who sees all things. That sickness and true illness of the body can actually be related to sin. And so James simply encourages those in this context and time that if there had been sins committed, they ought to be repented of. It's an encouragement that we confess our sins to one another, that we pray for one another. These are all good instructions and still for our day. But the whole context here is, is in the matter of the prayer that is offered. It is called a prayer of faith. It, it is not a particular prayer, one that has its words already written out, but it's a prayer that is offered in faith. One commentator argues, and I think rather persuasively, that this refers to an actual event or a, a time in the life of the church to which James is again writing, where the elders knew, in fact, that God had promised that this healing would take place, and so they pray with faith, believing God's promise. And the promise is given, the Lord will heal the one or save, the word is, the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up. Part of the reason is because of the word used there for prayer in verse 15 is not the common word for prayer, but a word instead that means a vow, a vow taken or a vow made. And so what we have ultimately here, I think, is a picture of a deliberate, as one writer says, and peaceful acceptance of the will of God 
that God having perhaps revealed that this healing would take place, that there is a deliberate and peaceful acceptance of that will, and the elders come and they pray, and their prayer is effective to bring out the consequence or the result of that prayer desired, which is the healing and the restoration of the one who is sick. Now, again, there are a lot of debates, a lot of, a lot of discussion regarding these kinds of things, but I think the importance of seeing that this is a picture of prayer made in accordance with God's will and a deliberate and peaceful acceptance of that will made with boldness before the throne of God is what is in view here. The Bible warns us with respect to prayer, our own prayers, that we cannot come with a stubborn insistence that we got it all right and that our will must be done, that we completely understand what God's will is, but always giving ourselves over to that place where we say, not my will, but thy will be done and to do it with a boldness and a courage as we pray for one another, always allowing God and his sovereignty to determine the outcome of all of these things. Prayer, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's a fair translation, I think, of a difficult verse. Again, the King James, the fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Here, the emphasis seems to be upon the power of that prayer as it is working, that our prayers do reach the ears of God, that he hears us. And as we said last week, our prayers move God, as it were, to action that all part of his sovereignty is the, the very use of the secondary means of prayer to move him into action and to move him to work for the good of all of those he loves. Now, this picture of a righteous man has caused many people to wonder who, who among us is able to pray. But as we've said in other contexts, the, the term and the idea here of righteousness is not that we possess a perfection that enables us to come in and of ourselves to the God who sees all, right? That we don't possess that perfection, but we come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Pastor Fisher noted that last week as we looked at Psalm 4 that there is a righteousness which we stand in, in the person of Jesus. And that is the one who comes in the righteousness of Jesus, his conscience or her conscience cleared of anything. They're not guilty. The psalmist often speaks that way, that the, David can say, I'm not guilty of this. I am righteous before God. That's not an arrogant statement. That's a statement of fact. David is assessing his own heart and his own life, and he's saying, I have done nothing wrong. And so therefore, he's able to say that before God in this matter, he is righteous. And so it is with the prayer of a righteous person who comes in and through Christ and in faith believing that that prayer is effective and powerful. Matthew Henry says about the righteous man, but he names expressly the prayer of a righteous or just man because God does not hear the ungodly, nor is access to God open except through a good conscience. 
Not that our prayers are founded on our own worthiness, not because the heart must be cleansed by faith, but because the heart must be cleansed by faith before we can present ourselves to God. We're not trusting in our worthiness. We're, we're allowing God's word to cleanse our hearts by faith so that we can present ourselves to God as unblemished. Then James testifies that the righteous or the faithful pray for us beneficially and not without fruit. To drive home his point, he brings up the example of Elijah. And notice what he says about Elijah in these verses, 17. Elijah was a man, a human being, with a nature like ours. Elijah was just like us. He was prone, as we know his story, to highs and lows, times of great faith that we read about in the earlier Old Testament reading, where he stood before all of his enemies and called down the fire of God's judgment upon them. He was a man of courage and faith, and yet immediately afterwards, he runs away in fear and hides in a cave. So he was prone to highs and lows, weakness and strength, just like you and I are prone to the th same things. But James brings him up here to encourage us, to encourage us to persevere and to press on in prayer. That it's not because of us and who we are. Elijah, with a clear conscience, was able to pray. And God withheld rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and God sent rain, and the earth bore its fruit. As a picture and expression of the effectiveness and power of prayer. It is an encouragement, then, to all of us that we press on in prayer. That God does hear and answer the prayers of a righteous man or woman. But he names expressly the prayer of this righteous man or woman, clear in his or her conscience, faithful to God as much as it is possible to be by his grace. Hearts cleansed by faith, presenting all of our requests before God. That's the picture of the prayer of a righteous man or woman that has great power in its working. Well, how does this then apply to Jesus? Imagine such a one who is altogether holy and righteous, whose will is perfectly aligned with the Father's, and who asks all things in accordance with that will. Imagine one who is faithful in all that he does, who labors in prayer with perfect knowledge, knowing what we have need of even before we ask or even before we would know what to ask. Imagine one whose every prayer is heard and answered because the Father delights to hear him and to grant him every desire of his heart. This is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us, for all who believe on his name and who come to God through him. He is the one who, like Elijah, as it were, has a nature like ours, fully human and yet without sin, who has taken that nature into heaven itself, now glorified, and faithfully intercedes for us before the Father. He is, Jesus is, the righteous one 
whose prayers are powerful and effective for our good and for our perseverance. Whatever it is, and again, there's great debate of this passage as to what James is particularly referring to. Whatever it is that James is speaking of with respect to the prayer of faith for those who are sick and the healing that follows, this much we know is true. That when we consider this passage that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, we see it supremely fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is the perfectly righteous Savior who intercedes for us, whose prayers are heard and answered in your life and in mine. And what he is doing, the Bible tells us, is all for our good. No matter what it is that happens in our lives, Jesus, who prays for us, his prayers are effectual, they're powerful for our good. I want to give us two examples as we consider this point that this passage in verse 16 refers ultimately and more fully to Jesus. Two examples of where we see his prayers effectual and powerful in its working. The first example comes both to actually from the Gospel of Luke. And this one you know well, we're entering into the season where we will look at the seven words of Christ from the cross but do you know what his very first word was from the cross? The very first words that passed through his lips as he hung there in shame before all who were mocking him and watching him. And when they came, Luke 23, verse 24 tells us, or 34, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That prayer, and it is a prayer offered to his Father, his desire set before his Father in transparency, forces us to ask the question, was Jesus just praying generally, or was it a specific prayer? Most commentators, I believe, rightly believe it was a specific prayer. For Jews and Gentiles alike who stood before him, mocking him, cursing him, doing all that they can to bring about the very experience that he was living. But all of that he knew was by the preordination of God, his father, from before the world began. All of it was according to God's plan. But the people did not know, nor did they understand. And so in a very real way, Jesus's prayer was for those who were standing there before him, who would one day, soon, many of them, come to profess faith in Jesus Christ, that God would work powerfully by his spirit in answer to this very prayer and bring about the salvation of those who had witnessed, participated in, and seen the suffering of the Savior. He prays, Father, forgive them, J.C. Ryle says the fruits of this wonderful prayer will never be fully seen until the day when the books are opened and the secrets of all hearts are revealed. We have probably not the least idea how many of the conversions to God at Jerusalem, which took place during the first six months after the crucifixion, were the direct reply to this marvelous prayer. 
Perhaps this prayer was the first step towards the penitent thief's repentance. I love that. Perhaps that very prayer was what led to God working in the heart of one of those thieves who hung beside him. Perhaps it was one means of affecting the centurion who declared our Lord a righteous man and the people who smote their breasts and returned. Perhaps the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost, foremost it may be at one time among our Lord's murderers, owed their conversion to this very prayer. The day will declare it. There is nothing secret that shall not be revealed. This only we know, that the Father hears the Son always. And we may be sure that this wondrous prayer uttered the first words he spoke from the cross was heard by his Father. For the righteous prayers, or the, the prayers of a righteous man, availeth much. We see it there, but we see it in another prayer, one that we've mentioned and talked about at some length in our study as we begin in John 17. And that's the statement that Jesus makes to Peter. I have prayed for you. In Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is a remarkable passage. It's one that is full of theological depth. Jesus could have easily, God could have in his wisdom, allowed Peter not to go down this path, not to give in to temptation, but instead to stand firm in the day of his testing. But Jesus knew that he would. And so the understanding that God allows in our lives those times and seasons where even our falling away and our very denial of him is part of the, the grand picture of our lives. Christ being faithful even in that fall to pray for us and to bring us back, as it were, to safety in his presence is all part of it. It's a wonderful picture which Jesus gives to Peter here, I have prayed for you. This is an example of our Lord's office as intercessor for his people. What he did for Peter, when Peter knew nothing of his danger, he is daily and hourly doing for all who believe in his name. And those prayers are powerful and effectual. I would ask that you would simply think of your own lives as I think of mine, times of testing and trial that have taken you to the very brink, where thoughts of denying and leaving Christ and pursuing your own loves and interests have been ever present in your mind. How is it that you have come from that time and place to a place where you are perhaps even now? where you are resolute and determined by the grace of God to follow faithfully after Christ? How is it that someone who three times, not once, not twice, but the stunning reality is three times, when given the opportunity, denied that he ever knew Jesus, cursed him before those who asked the question, how is it that that man would stand on the day of Pentecost as the spokesman for the disciples 
the originator, the founder, if you will, Christ being the chief cornerstone, but the church being built on the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. Peter, chief among them, would stand and with boldness and courage and no fear for his life, would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a hostile crowd. How is it that that would happen? The answer, my brothers and sisters, is clear. Jesus prayed for him. And the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What Jesus asks for, what he prays before the Father, is always that we would persevere, always that we would press on, always that we would not be taken or fall away. It is impossible because Jesus is our great high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for us, and he is the righteous one who prays for us that our souls would be kept safe from our enemies. Peter was going to be sifted like wheat. Maybe you felt that in your life, the, the temptations of the devil, the assaults of the enemy. Know that there is a Savior who is effectual and fervent in his prayers for you, and those prayers will avail much in your life. And you will stand and you will persevere because he is ever faithful, pleading for you. In both of these examples, we are encouraged that Jesus knows not only what to pray for, something we'll look at as we look at the text in John 17, but that his prayers, again, are always powerful and effective to bring about what he asks for. I want to go back to the castles as we began. I mentioned Dwight Castle, his struggle. He's a minister of the gospel. He knows and understands theology, but you know as well as I that theology can't just simply remain in your head. It has to come down to real life, and he struggled to know how that would come down, how God would be good in the midst of this. Stephanie also struggled, the story says, to believe God was doing a good thing. When she confessed her doubts to a fellow church member, the friend told her that it was okay. And, and I'll give you this. This is a wonderful piece of advice. If you can say it, be with a clear conscience, do it to those who are struggling. Her friend said it was okay that she, the friend, would believe for her. That she would pray for her in such a way that she would, as it were, believe for Stephanie. What she was doing is giving a witness to this truth that we've studied this morning. That she would go to her father through the son who intercedes. And that the son himself will keep Stephanie through it all. And that's how it's been, Stephanie explains, tears filling her eyes. When we are weak, others around us are strong. It's a beautiful picture of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ as we carry and share one another's burdens. But brothers and sisters, it all happens because we have a faithful high priest through whom and in whom we come to the Father. And his prayers are always heard and always answered. There's no danger that some secret sin would keep God from hearing him. There's no danger that some separation from God, some distance from God would ever creep in so that the Father would not hear him. He is the righteous man, and his prayers are always heard 
and his will is always done. Here is the wonder and the glory of it all for the castles and for all who struggle in prayer, who doubt and who are often perplexed. There really is one who believes for us, whose every prayer for us is heard and answered by the Father, so that we are not left alone ever to ourselves, but by his grace we are able to persevere in faith, believing. And as we have said of our brief study in James 5, this does not mean, this does not mean that we will always get what we ask for, because God is always sovereign over our lives, and he is pleased to bring into them what he deems best for his glory and for our good. I have no doubt that the Castle family prayed for the children that were in Stephanie's womb in those early days when they knew they were pregnant, for the children the Lord had given them, that like we pray that they would be born healthy and strong, no complications, no concerns. They could not know and they could not see what God was preparing for them. Had they known, they would have been crushed under the weight of it. And even in knowing, they almost were, but for the intercession of their Savior at God's right hand on their behalf. Like Peter, Jesus already knew what was coming into their lives. Two precious girls, later separated successfully, one remaining still in the hospital, the other already home, living, Lord willing, healthy and strong lives by the grace of God. But like Peter, Jesus knew what was coming, as it were. He knew what they needed, and so he prayed for them as a righteous man, effectual and powerful. He prayed that their faith would not fail. He prayed that they would know the power of his grace. He prayed that the showers of God's love would fall upon them through the care and communion of the saints in tangible ways, and it has. He prayed that by their example, others would be strengthened and encouraged in the things of Christ. And he prayed so much more for them as he does for you and I this morning. And they are learning. They are, as the story goes on, resting now back in Alabama as of late February, waiting for their daughter Elizabeth to come home from the hospital, more confident than ever that Jesus will pray and is praying for them. And in all of it, his goal, we might say, is to bring them to the place where he himself knew and came to know so deeply in his earthly ministry. That place of deep loneliness, of insufferable pain, when the cry of our believing soul can utter only the briefest of prayers. And you know what that prayer is, don't you? Not my will. Not my will but yours be done. You see, that is really the place where all prayer takes us. And it is, I contend, the place where Jesus desires to take you and me as he intercedes before the Father for our good. That joy, that peace, and that contentment that all that the Father wills for us is best. Not my will, O Lord, but thine be done. Let us pray. Our Father, what a great encouragement you've given to us, an encouragement to prayer fervently, without ceasing, 
because you have promised that the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so may we press on by your grace in that grace of prayer for one another, for ourselves. But may we ever remember and ever find comfort in the one who prays for us, that we might persevere in faith, and that we might rest in the knowledge of your holy will, which is the very best for us. Bring us to that place, we pray, and we ask it with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.